But let's uh, get into my presentation that um, I was able to email from the car while I was driving. How do you like that? Through my phone. Don't tell anybody. Um, so uh, if you can see the, the screen's okay, um, I'll stand closer to this one just because um, the... Over here. So, Pulitzer Prize winning historian Arthur Schlesinger was on John F. Kennedy's staff, and he said, History is to the nation as memory is to the individual. Have you ever met an individual who has lost their memory? Maybe they have Alzheimer's. They forgot who they are, they forgot who you are. They can be taken advantage of very easily. Well, guess what? We have national Alzheimer's. Here we are, the freest, most prosperous country that planet Earth has ever seen, and we forgot how we got here. And as a result, we're letting it slip through our fingers like sand. And so we need to realize how totally rare what we have in America is. Now, there's approximately 6,000 years of recorded human history. So writing was invented around three or 4,000 B.C., Sumerian cuneiform on clay tablets in the Mesopotamian Valley. Get any secular history book, and it talks about writing being invented and the Fertile Crescent. Today, that's Iraq, around three or 4,000 B.C. And uh, Egyptian hieroglyphics were invented around 3,000 B.C. And Chinese characters, pictograms, uh, they were invented around 2,600 B.C. by the Yellow Emperor on bamboo annals. And so you round it out three or 4,000 B.C., uh, and, and now we're around 2080, so that's around five or 6,000 years of records of human beings writing down records. And so here's Franklin Roosevelt. He said, 5,000 years of recorded history have proven that mankind has always believed in God in spite of the many abortive attempts to exile God. But he uses this number of 5,000. Here's Richard Overy. He wrote, the, the editor of the Times Complete History of the World, he said, no date appears before the start of human civilizations around 5,500 years ago and the beginning of a written history. And Daniel Webster was a senator. He said, miracles do not cluster, and what has happened once in 6,000 years may not happen again. Hold on to the Constitution, for if the American Constitution should fail, there will be anarchy throughout the world. He thought something really unique happened right here. And James Wilson was a signer of the Declaration and the Constitution and was put on the Supreme Court by George Washington, pretty smart guy. He said, after a period of 6,000 years since creation, the United States exhibit to the world the first instance of a nation assembling voluntarily and deciding that system of government under which they should live. He thought something really unique happened here. And so 6,000 years is not that long. It's only 60 people living 100 years each back to back. How many of you have met someone who's lived 100 years or close to it? Right, maybe a grandmother. We're talking 60 grandmothers. And you're all the way back to the beginning of recorded human history. So it's not that long. But it's been a 6,000-year quest to rule the world. And so we, what do these records show? Well, they show that power wants to concentrate into the hands of one person. Uh, the Bible tells the story of Nimrod concentrating power. The Bible, the Jewish commentary, says he wanted to make the tower so high that if God destroyed the world again with a flood, he could survive on top. And so it was sort of this defiant, in-your-face attitude toward God. He was reportedly the first king to wear a crown and so forth. And um, he was forcing everybody else to build his tower. And God comes down and confuses the language, and they scatter. So this is the first illustration of concentrated power and separated power. And it's sort of like that movie, The Terminator, with Arnold Schwarzenegger, where um, uh, the robot killer from the future is chasing after him, and they finally blow it to pieces, and then finally the, um, 
the audience sighs relief. They finally got rid of this thing. But then the little pieces melt into silver, silver balls, and they roll together in little silvery pools, and they sort of roll together in this big silvery pool. Then out of it comes his hand, and then the Terminators are climbing out there and chasing him. Again. How do we get rid of this thing? That's like power concentrating into the hands of one person, a Nimrod, and we, God confuses the language and they scatter, but every generation this Terminator tries to come back, this Nimrod. So you see the, the story of history, and you see there's 2,000 years, and 33 major Egyptian dynasties ruled by pharaohs, pouring human life down the sands of the desert, building cities of the dead, you know, Memphis. And then you have Nebuchadnezzar and Sargon of Acadia and Alexander the Great and Cyrus of Persia and Darius. And power keeps concentrating in 5,000 years and 18 major Chinese dynasties ruled by emperors. And they would have 2,000 concubines. I mean, uh, they would, um, Chandra Gupta had the empire in India, right? Stopped Alexander the Great, and he became the, the ruler there. And uh, Attila the Hun had an army of a half a million men. He was wiping out entire cities of Europe. And then Justinian and uh, Montezuma and the Muslim sultans and uh, Kublai Khan and Genghis Khan. Genghis Khan killed uh, 30 million people from Korea to Hungary. I mean, uh, and so it's, it's almost like every generation wants to rebuild this Tower of Babel. And so in that sense, death is a blessing. I think death is a blessing? Yeah, because at least these dictators die <laughs> and the people get a breather, right? The problem is each one of us has, has that dictator DNA on the inside of us, right? Ever since the sin in the garden. And um, anyway, so the most common form of government is a king. And power wants to concentrate into the hands of one person. And it's just there. It's like the pull of a magnet, like the law of gravity. In the movie The uh, Lord of the Rings, there's a line where Gandalf tells Frodo, always remember, Frodo, the ring is trying to get back to its master. It wants to be found. Power wants to concentrate. And I think it goes back to the fall in the garden and Cain killing Abel, right? And selfishness coming into the human DNA, and so you put some babies in a playpen, one of them will take the rattle from the others. You put some kids on a playground, one of them is the bully hogging the ball. Put some girls in a junior high clique, and one of them's the diva. You put some natives in the woods, and one of them's the Indian chief. And you put some people in an inner city, one of them's the gang leader. And all a king is, in a sense, is a glorified gang leader. And it's very hierarchical where if you are friends with the king, you are more equal. If you are not friends with the king, you are less equal. And if you're an enemy of the king, you're dead. It's called treason. <laughs> so for most of world history, equality was, how close of an orbit can you get to this guy at the top of the pyramid, right? How, how close of a relationship do you have to the royal family, to the all, who do you know that's connected, right? <clears throat> And so you have the pharaoh and the kings and the dictators at the top, and then their servants and scribes and soldiers, and then finally the slaves are at the bottom. And this is the norm for world history. And uh, people say, well, we don't have kings today. Well, yeah, we do. Because um, socialism and communism is nothing more than a monarchy remake. Really? Yeah, think of it. Every socialist country has a dictator, Right. Nazi was the National Socialist Workers' Party, and it had a ruler named Hitler, right? So Nazi is the socialist uh, country, country, government. Uh, the U Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, the USSR, right? Socialist republics, and they have dictators, right? They had Stalin and Khrushchev and Brezhnev and so forth. 
And, uh, and then you realize, well, I thought in communism, everybody owns everything equally, right? Well, think of it. Who decides who lives in the nice house and who lives in the dumpy house? Uh, somebody in the government dictates those things. Well, whoever ultimately dictates th- those things is the dictator. So, uh, so every communist country has a dictator. Stalin, Pol Pot, Ho Chi Minh, Castro, Mao Zedong, and the Communist Party members are the new royalty. They get to live in the nice houses, special shops to shop in, right? And then the people are the peasants. And uh, even Franklin Roosevelt said the Soviet Union is run as a dictatorship, as absolute as any dictatorship in the world. So all this stuff about equal stuff, it's, it's just a bunch of hogwash, right? Because, in fact, it's administered by people who want to stay in power, and they're going to funnel the money to those that can help them stay in power. And so, uh, through the history, it was called the divine right of kings. And so the Egyptian pharaohs claimed to be the son of the god Osiris. They were like this royal intermediary. The Assyrian kings were king priests. The Incan emperors claimed to be delegates of the sun god. The Chinese emperors claimed to be, uh, have a mandate from heaven to be the emperor. The Indian uh, kings claimed to be semi-divine. And then, of course, the Roman emperors demanded to be, uh, their image be worshipped as a god. Uh, and then the Europeans, they Christianized it and called it the divine right of kings. God chose me to be the king, so whatever my will is must be God's will because he put me here. And so there was this person that was the intermediary between the people and the creator, a political person. And um, uh, we're going to see how Israel is the unique difference of this. You think, well, Israel, wasn't Moses the person that was between heaven and God? Yeah, but Moses came down the mountain with a law that says there's no respect to persons in judgment. And everyone's to be treated the same, but I'm going to get into that a little bit more. So, uh, as the centuries go on, these kingdoms get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until you finally have global empires, right? Spanish Empire, the sun never set on the Spanish Empire, and then you had the French. Here's King Louis XIV of France, the longest reigning monarch in Europe, and he said, I am the state. Talk about an ego. And he's called the sun king because all of his subjects are the planets that revolved around him. And he says, it is legal because I wish it. Lo and behold, the law is simply the king's will forced down the pyramid, down everybody's throat. It's this top-down thing. And it took centuries before America was given the chance to break away from the king and have a government from the bottom up, right? Like a tree with roots that get to the little smaller roots till finally get these hair-thin roots, and then it's taking the nourishment and the moisture out of the soil, and it sucks it up into this tree. It's like every little citizen gets to be a part of building this structure of our, our government, Whereas the other model is this pyramid where it's forced from the top down. So uh, skipping past a whole lot of history, uh, in the 1500s, the two most powerful kings on the planet was the king of Spain. He was the head of the Holy Roman Empire. And the Muslim sultan, Suleiman the Magnificent, he was the head of the Ottoman Empire. Empires are ruled by emperors. And so you have a Holy Roman Emperor who's Catholic, and then the Sultan Suleiman is the Muslim Emperor. These are the two most powerful guys in the world. So King Charles V ruled Spain by marriage, Portugal and Brazil and all these other countries, and Italy and the Spanish Netherlands, and then he, he uh, controlled the whole New World. 
He used the gold from the New World to fight the Muslims for keep them from taking over the Mediterranean. And the Muslim Sultan controlled Morocco, Algiers, Tunisia, Libya, Egypt, and the Middle East, and all into Persia, and into Turkey, and into the Eastern Europe. Now, a little bit of the background on the Islam thing. Starts with Muhammad, and he is, starts his faith in 610 A.D., and he is a religious leader in the pagan city of Mecca, and he only makes 70 converts in 12 years. And he begins to get confrontational. And so the people of Mecca decide that he is a disturber of the peace, and they chase Muhammad out of town in the year 622 A.D. And so Muhammad has nowhere to go. He is a Muslim refugee. He goes north 210 miles to Medina, which was a Jewish city. They're nice. They let Muhammad in as a Muslim immigrant. He goes into the minority neighborhoods in Medina, and he begins to organize a following amongst those who have grievances against the Jewish government, right? These pagans, and he organizes. We're familiar with the term of organizing in the community, and so Muhammad gets a following. And when it's big enough, he goes to the Jews, and he pressures them to accommodate him and his followers politically, And they do. And so now Muhammad is a political leader in addition to being a religious leader. Then something happens. Muhammad's followers in Mecca get confrontational and argumentative and threatening. And they get chased out of town for disturbing the peace. They're Muslim refugees. They have nowhere to go. They go to Medina and the Jews are nice. They let them in as Muslim immigrants. And Muhammad allows his followers to rob the caravans headed to Mecca in retaliation for the Meccans chasing them out of town. And so there's the caravan routes, and you can see they go through Medina where Muhammad and his men rob them. And, um, and so um, where Jesus said, if they take your coat, give them your shirt, Muhammad's attitude was, if they take your house and kick you out of town, you retaliate, take their caravan. And so Muhammad got a whole chapter of the Quran from his Allah on how to distribute booty from robbing caravans. It's Surah 8, chapter 8. Muhammad gets a fifth of the booty. And so the Meccans send a thousand soldiers to protect their caravan, and Muhammad with 300 defeats a thousand at the Battle of Badra. And this amazing victory, having been outnumbered three to one, convinces Muhammad to be a military leader. And so he fights in 66 battles and raids in the next eight years before he dies. And so we see the Muslims conquer Yemen, which used to be a Jewish kingdom. Jerusalem had been a Byzantine Christian city for three centuries since Constantine, and the Muslims conquered it. Syria was the first country to completely be Christian, evangelized by the Apostle Paul. The name Christian was first used in Syria until the Muslims conquered it. Egypt was completely Christian, evangelized by Mark that wrote the gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, until the Muslims conquered it. There used to be 250 Catholic dioceses along North Africa in the 7th century. They're all conquered by the Muslims. And then they invade Spain and in the year 711, and they conquer all of Spain in 10 years because the Muslims are fighting on Arabian horses with stirrups and scimitar swords, and the Europeans are still fighting on foot with heavy metal swords. And so... Uh, the scimitar sword and holding the reins of the horse in one hand, uh, they could literally slice somebody in half while riding at a full gallop. And so in 10 years, they conquer all of Spain, carry away over a million into slavery. There were whole Catholic orders in Europe in the Middle Ages called the Trinitarians, and the head of the order was called the Ransomer. And they would collect alms and donations and go to North Africa to try to ransom your friend back from sex trafficking. They were captured and put into a Muslim harem or something. And so it took 700 years to drive the Muslims out of Spain. And then they come around the other side and they attack into the Byzantine Empire. 
So today we call it Turkey, but back then it was all Christian. All seven churches mentioned in the book of Revelation were wiped out by the Muslim Turks. All these, half of the New Testament was written to cities like Ephesus and Colossae and Philippi and Corinth. All those cities were wiped out by the Muslim Turks. And so the Greek Christians beg the Europeans for help, and the West sends help. It's called the what? The Crusades. So there's nine major crusades in 200 years. And anyway, that's a whole nother story, but we'll get back to this. So here's the Ottoman Empire in the 1500s. Sultan Suleiman controls this enormous area. And that's Charles V. He controls this area. And so Charles V, being Catholic, is faced with a double dilemma. Protestant Reformation on one hand, started by Martin Luther in 1517, and Muslim invasion surrounding Vienna in 1529. And so he's like, whoa, what, what, can, what do I do? I got this double problem. And so Charles V decides he's going to strike a deal with the Protestants. Now, here's a couple of quotes. Here's Martin Luther. He says, the Turk is the rod of the wrath of the Lord our God. If the Turk's God, the devil is not beaten first, or has reason to fear the Turk will not be so easy to beat. John Calvin wrote, I hear the sad condition of your Germany. The Turk again prepares to wage war with a larger force. Who will stand up to oppose his marching throughout the land at his mere will and pleasure? John Wesley said, ever since the religion of Islam appeared in the world, espousers of it have been as wolves and tigers to all other nations, rending and tearing all that fell into their merciless paws. Two centuries before the Reformation, Thomas Aquinas wrote, Muhammad seduced the people by promises of carnal pleasure. Those who believed in him, believed in him were brutal men and desert wanderers. Muhammad forced others to become his followers by the violence of his arms. And so Charles V decides to strike a deal with the Protestants, it's called the Peace of Augsburg of 1555. This is the first treaty ever to recognize Protestants. And um, in this treaty is a little Latin phrase that had enormous repercussions, even influencing America. What was the phrase? Cuius regio ius religio, which means whose is the reign, his is the religion. So, in other words, look, Protestant king, believe whatever you want in your kingdom. Let's just work together against these Muslims who are invading Europe because they want to kill us all. And so prior to this treaty, all of Western Europe was Catholic. After this treaty, the different kings decided to believe different things. And so northern Germany and Sweden became Lutheran, Switzerland Calvinist, Scotland Presbyterian, Holland Dutch Reformed. Greece was Greek Orthodox, Russia was Russian Orthodox, England was Anglican, and Spain, Portugal, France, Austria, Italy, Poland remained Catholic. But it was what the king believed the kingdom had to believe. Again, prior to the Muslim invasion, it was all the Holy Roman Empire, and it was all Catholic, but now the kings could believe different things, but it was one Christian denomination per country in Europe. And if you did not believe the way your king did, you were persecuted and you fled. So there's mass migration of people shifting around Europe for conscience sake. Those were the ones that spilled over and founded colonies in America. Well, um, let's look at England a little closer. England had a king named Henry VIII, and he was Catholic. He was married to Catherine of Aragon. She was the daughter of the king of Spain, the most powerful guy in the world. And after 18 years, Catherine did not have a son. A daughter Mary, but not a son. So Henry VIII decides he's going to divorce her. The Pope won't recognize the divorce. 
because she is, after all, the daughter of the most powerful guy in the world. Anyway, Henry decides that he's going to go through with a divorce, and he's going to make himself his own pope. <laughs> he starts the Church of England, puts himself on as the head, and he goes on to have six wives. And their fates were divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, survived. <laughs> so Henry VIII was not a really nice guy to be married to. Well, he, his uh, advisors suggested to him, if he really wants to go through with breaking with Rome... He should stop using that old Latin Bible. Because as long as you're having the church services in Latin, they're going to think of Italy and they're going to want to look back to the Pope. So he says, get an English Bible and spread it around the country. So Henry VIII thinks that's a good idea. So he spreads the English Bible around the country and something unexpected happened. People began to read it. And they began to compare what's in this Bible to this king divorcing and beheading his wives and claiming to be the head of Christ's church on the earth. <laughs> and so a group started that wanted to purify the church of England. And they were nicknamed the Puritans. Well, the king obviously did not think he needed any purifying. And so he persecuted the Puritans. And Charles I uh, hired an Anglican archbishop named William Laud, L-A-U-D, Laud. And Laud sent spies into the churches and if the pastor's sermons didn't fit the Anglican liturgy, the pastor was arrested. One guy named Alexander Layton was a professor at Oxford, and he uh, thought that the Anglican church did not separate enough from the Catholics because the Anglicans continued to wear the cassocks, those robes. And um, he thought that they should no longer wear the robes. Well, they continued wearing the robes. Matter of fact, Oxford and Cambridge were universities to train people for the ministry, to become priests, and then they would become Anglican priests. But then the universities in America started, and they would train ministers, and they would wear the cassocks. And then more universities started, and they would wear the, and then they would just wear the cassocks at graduation. And we still continue that tradition today. Every graduation, all the students get their Catholic cassocks, and they go down there. That goes all the way back to when they were seminaries in England. Anyway, so Alexander Layton thought that they should no longer wear cassocks. And the king, he was disagreeing with the king, and so he, so he was arrested. And Alexander Layton had his nose cut in half, his ears cut off, branded on the face as a heretic, whipped twice, and put in the Tower of London till he died. It was a very serious thing to not believe what the king believed. Well, there was another group that said it's beyond hope of trying to purify the Church of England. We're going to separate ourselves. And they would meet in secret, in barns and basements by candlelight. And when they were captured and arrested, they were put in jail. But finally, they decided to flee to Holland. And they had a little bit of freedom in Holland, but then Spain threatened to attack Holland, and so they said, said let's flee again. And they said, let's go to Jamestown, Virginia, which was started a few years earlier in 1607. And so the pilgrims leave in 1620. But their first boat, the Godspeed, began to leak, so they had to go back. And then they got another ship called the Mayflower, but then they had to waste a bunch of time. And now they're sailing in the wintertime, and it's stormy, and they get blown off course, and they're headed toward Massachusetts. The captain tries to go around, but south of Massachusetts is the graveyard of ships. 
this area where there's well, rocks right under the water and, there's, and the, you can't see them and ships, the whole lot of shipwrecks that happen there. And so anyway, the captain comes back to Plymouth and says, okay, everybody, get off the boat. You're going to spend the winter here. And, uh, you know, I read through every charter of every colony. And I found that almost all of them, it's the king deciding who is going to run the colony in his stead. And so there were three types of colonies, company colonies, royal crown colonies, and proprietary colonies. A company colony. It was the Virginia Company. And they had investors of blacksmiths and cooks and farmers, and they put money into it, and they hoped to get a return, and they didn't. Uh, But the king approved the bylaws for it, and the king approved who was going to run it. They had to get the king's stamp. Well, when Virginia went bankrupt because of Indian attacks and malaria and everything, they threw the, the colony in the king's lap. And this, this is your problem. And so Virginia be, became a royal crown colony and a royal governor was sent over there and he ruled directly under the king. So now we got company colony, royal colony, and then there's a proprietary colony where the whole colony is given as property to one of the king's friends. So all of Baltimore... I mean, all of Maryland was given to Lord Baltimore as his property. All of Pennsylvania, 45,000 square miles, was given to William Penn as his property. And the Carolinas was given as property to the seven Lord proprietors, the property owners. And um, so those were the three types of colonies. But the king approved who was going to run them. Well, when the pilgrims got blown off course and the captain says, everybody off the boat, they say, well, who's going to be in charge? There's no king appointed person on our boat. There's no emergency plan that if we're not landing in Virginia, who's going to run this thing? The king didn't, there's nobody here. And they decided to do something unique. They decided to write their own government called the Mayflower Compact. It's the first constitution written in the new world. Here's a little line out of it. It says, in ye presence of God, we covenant ourselves together into a civil body politic. They create a government. They create a political body to enact just and equal laws, as shall be thought most meet, unto which we promise all due submission. Simple, revolutionary. This was them granting themselves permission to have a government under God and agreeing to submit to the laws they pass. This became a blueprint for the other New England colonies and eventually our U.S. Constitution, which starts off how we the people, we're granting ourselves permission. We're not asking the king, can we do this thing? We're not, we don't care, we're doing it. And the word federal is Latin for covenant. So we have a covenant form of government that can be traced back all the way to the Magna Carta, I mean, to the um, uh, Mayflower Compact. Now, where did the pilgrims get the idea that they could create their own body, body politic? Well, from their pastor. So here is a painting of the pilgrims on the deck of their ship. And there's their pastor, John Robinson. And there's Elder William Brewster, and there's an open Bible. This painting hangs in our U.S. Capitol Rotunda in Washington, D.C. And so their pastor is not a king-appointed Anglican pastor. He's a separatist pastor. And so he would tell his congregation, when you got really tough decisions, everybody fast and pray and then vote. And we'll get the mind of the Lord on things. Anyway, that is where the pilgrims got the idea from their pastor. Now, I mentioned how I read through every charter of every colony, and I found something interesting. Every colony was started by a different Christian denomination. So Virginia was Anglican from 1606 to 1786. 
Massachusetts was Puritan. New York was a Dutch Reformed colony. Maryland was a Catholic colony. New Jersey was a Swedish Lutheran colony. Gustav Adolphus of Sweden wanted to found New Sweden. And at that time, Sweden was huge and controlled parts of Russia and Latvia and Estonia. And so some of those people are settling, right? So the oldest church in Philadelphia uh, is Old Swedes Church because that was part of the original New Sweden colony. And Delaware was originally New Sweden. And they were what? Swedish Lutheran. And then Rhode Island was a Baptist colony. And Pennsylvania was a Quaker colony. And Georgia was a plain Protestant colony. And Connecticut was a Congregationalist Protestant colony, as was New Hampshire. North Carolina was the seven Lord Proprietors founded it, right? And they were Anglican, but they wanted to hurry up and populate the colony. So they left a loophole in the bylaws that at the Proprietors' discretion, they should be allowed to let in non-Anglicans. And so they could be exposed to the true Anglican faith, so, so and so forth. And also into the Carolinas flood Presbyterians and Quakers and Huguenots. And then they get a new governor that wants to tighten the screws and make it more Anglican. And that's when South Carolina breaks away in 1711 saying, we don't want to be more Anglican. And, um, and then, so I'm reading through all of the uh, legislative acts of these early colonies. Put it together in a book called The Original 13. I thought this was interesting. This is Virginia Assembly in 1624. Whosoever shall absent himself from divine service any Sunday without an allowable excuse shall forfeit a pound of tobacco. (laughs) They didn't just go to church. They had to go to church. And if you didn't, oh, you missed church. Is everything okay? Pay the tobacco. (laughs) And um, anyway, so then I read through every one of the state constitutions. Did you know nine of the original 13 state constitutions required you to be a Protestant Christian to hold state office? Nine of them. Uh, Only three let Catholics in, and uh, then one had zero religious requirements, Rhode Island. Rhode Island said that if you required someone to be a Christian, they could say they were just to get elected, and that would be hypocritical. Could you imagine someone saying they're Christian just to get elected? Hmm. Well, so there's three million people in America... And um, they're 98% Protestant, only 1% Catholic, and only seven synagogues, only 1,500 Jews in the whole country, like a tenth of a percent Jewish. So it's a predominantly Protestant country. So here's South Carolina's 1778 state constitution. The Christian Protestant religion shall be deemed the established religion of this state. I actually talked to attorneys that said if they wanted America to be a Christian nation, why didn't they just say so in their constitution? I go, duh, they did. They're state constitutions, right? And uh, here's New Hampshire's state constitution, 1784. No person shall be capable of being elected who's not of the Protestant religion. That was in effect up until 1877. You couldn't hold office in New Hampshire unless you were a Protestant Christian. And then Delaware was a liberal state. It said all you had to do to hold office. Every person appointed to office shall subscribe. I profess faith in God the Father and Jesus Christ his only Son, the Holy Ghost, one God blessed forevermore. You say, that's liberal? Yeah, because you could be any denomination of Protestant and even Catholic and believe that. That was really liberal. And then another liberal state was Pennsylvania. Ben Franklin signed this constitution that says, each member shall subscribe, I do believe in one God, the creator and governor of the universe, the rewarder of the good, the punisher of the wicked. And I do acknowledge the scriptures of the Old and New Testament to be given by divine inspiration. 
In other words, they not only had to lay their hand on a Bible to swear into office, they had to swear they believed in the Bible in order to hold office, which makes sense. What good would it do to lay your hand on a book you didn't believe in? You know, maybe oh, swear on a cookbook. Who can open it up to lasagna or something? But it's the idea you're calling a higher power to hold you accountable. And um, then in the early 1800s, there's an Irish potato famine. And millions of Irish Catholics flood into America. The Catholic percent goes from 2% to 20%. And there's a large anti-Catholic, anti-Irish immigrant backlash. And then after a while, it settles down. But for a while, they were calling the Irish, they would say the white, and then they would say the N-word. And they were like, and, and so they, um, uh, and so many states accommodated them. And so here's North Carolina's original 1776 state constitution. No person who shall deny the being of God or the truth of the Protestant religion or the divine authority of either the Old or New Testaments shall be capable of holding office. That was in 1776. But then after these Catholics flood in, in 1835, they changed it. So there's only one word difference, right? No person who shall deny the being of God or the truth of the Christian religion. Now, what difference does that make? That meant Catholics could hold office. Right? You didn't, didn't, instead of being Protestant, and that was 1835. That was in effect in North Carolina up until 1868 when they finally changed it to say all you had to do was believe in God. Like, really? So prior to 1868, you could not hold office in the state of North Carolina unless you were a Christian. And back before the 17th Amendment, the U.S. senators were elected out of their state legislatures. So you could not have been a U.S. senator from North Carolina unless you had first been a state legislator, and you couldn't have been unless you were a Christian. Uh, Then there's a persecution of Jews in Bavaria in the middle 1800s, and they flood into America, and the Jewish percent goes from a tenth of a percent to like 2%. And so another state that accommodated them was Maryland. So their original 1776 state constitution in Maryland said no other test is required than an oath to the state and a declaration of belief in the Christian religion. But in 1851, they added this bottom part, see? And if the party shall profess to be a Jew, the declaration shall be of his belief in a future state of rewards and punishments. So as of 1851, you could hold office in the state of Maryland if you were a Christian or a Jew. Well, I thought separation of church and state, uh, yeah, that was to keep the federal government out of state business. I mean, that's what it says, after all. Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion, no prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Who's limited by that? Uh, I think Congress. Says Congress shall make no law. I think it limits Congress. And if they would have seen ahead where Supreme Courts would make laws from the bench, they would have said Congress and the Supreme Court shall make no law. And if they would have seen ahead where the president arbitrarily makes laws by executive orders and through regulations, they would have said Congress, the Supreme Court, and the president shall make no law respecting establishment of religion nor prohibiting the free exercise thereof. All the first Ten Amendments were were handcuffs on the federal government, right? And um, and then I um, was speaking in Florida last week, like I mentioned, and so I threw one of their quotes. This is um, 1838. All men have a natural and unalienable right to worship Almighty God according to the dictates of their own conscience. There's some assumptions there. Number one, they assume God exists. Number two, they assume He's monotheistic, so we're not talking Buddhism or Hinduism. Number three, it's assumed you're supposed to worship Him. You just have the choice as to how. And number four, 
You worship him according to the dictates of your own conscience, which precludes Islam. Because Islam, you're free to join, but it's the death penalty if you leave, right? So you don't have that freedom of conscience. Whereas in America, you're free to come and go as you please, you know. And, um, and I thought this was interesting. The liberty of conscience hereby secured shall not be so construed as to justify licentiousness. We don't use that word much anymore, but you know what licentiousness means? Sexual immorality. So you can't say, oh, freedom to do whatever I want. I want to have 19 wives and call it Mormonism. No, no, sorry, you can't do that. Oh, I want to have four wives in, in Islam. No, sorry, you can't do that. And um, so let's look at New England. So we talked about Europe was all Catholic. The Muslim invasion happened. And then the King Charles V let you believe whatever you want. Kings chose different things. People were migrating, spilled over and founded colonies. It was one denomination per colony. They didn't get along till the revolution started. And then afterwards, they were indebted to each other. But let's focus on New England. It was founded by pastors and their churches. So a Reverend John Cotton and his church founded Boston. Reverend John Lothrop and his church founded Barnstable, Massachusetts. Reverend Roger Williams and his church founded Providence, Rhode Island. Reverend John Wheelwright and his church founded Exeter, New Hampshire. And a Reverend Thomas and his church founded Hartford, Connecticut. What was the situation? Well, remember those Puritans that were being persecuted in England? They didn't like the king telling them how to have church. Well, they flooded to America in a great migration, 30,000 of them. And they were so large in number that they became the government. And they thought, you know what? Maybe it's not such a bad thing that the government tell the church how to have church because we're in charge of the government. And so the Puritans were pretty strict. And so, for example, Thomas Hooker would say, okay, everybody, we're, uh, we're going to leave. So next Saturday, everybody meet in the parking lot with your wagons and your oxen and all your stuff and your kids. And we're just going to go. We're going to go hill and dale. and We're going to go for a long way. And we're going to find some place, make peace with the Indians, chop down some trees and build ourselves a little community. And they did. They called it Hartford, Hartford, Connecticut. And then after a while, they go to the pastor and they said, Pastor, uh, how do we do the government thing? And so he gives a sermon in 1638 on how to do the government thing. And he lists all kinds of things, but there's this one revolutionary line. The foundation of authority is laid firstly in the free consent of the people. Why is that revolutionary? Because the whole world at the time was ruled by kings and emperors and czars and chieftains, and they claimed that the authority starts with the creator giving the king all the authority. And the king's the ultimate authority, and he dispenses it to whoever he wants, and he takes it away, and he hangs, and he kills, and everything. And this says, no, it's not a top-down thing. It's the free consent of the people. It's a bottom-up thing. And so his sermon was turned into the Fundamental Orders of Connecticut which was their state government from 1638 up until 1818. So many states rewrote their charters into constitutions when they broke from England. Connecticut said, no, our charter, our sermon from Thomas Hooker worked just fine. We're going to continue to use it. And they did up until 1818. And so historian John Fisk said that this fundamental orders was the first written constitution in history. And it became a blueprint for the other New England colonies and eventually the U.S. Constitution. And Thomas Hooker, his statue is in the state capital of Connecticut in Hartford. So here's the pastor with his Bible standing on the state capitol grounds. So question. In New England, how can you have separation of church and state when it was the church that created the state? 
right? They have, how could you have separation of church and state when it was the churches and the pastors that created the government? Oh, pastors should not get involved in government. Uh, wait a second. It was Thomas Hooker that created the government. It was like his sermon that was turned into the fundamental orders that they use as a state charter and constitution. Oh, the pastors shouldn't get involved. They couldn't have it because the pastor and his church created the government. Here's what Calvin Coolidge says in 1926. The principles which went into the Declaration of Independence are found in the sermons of the early colonial clergy. They preached equality because they believed in the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. In order that they might have freedom to express these thoughts and opportunities to put them into action, whole congregations with their pastors migrated to the colonies. Okay, congregation, we're all going to get together. We're going to go to the colonies. So in New England, the pastors realized something. They realized that the kingdom of God could not be forced from the top down. They saw these kings in Europe burning people at the stake for not believing the way the king did. And they saw in the scriptures where Jesus never forced anyone to follow him. He said something difficult, and many disciples walked with him no more. He turns to Peter and says, you want to go too? Peter says, where else can I go? You're the only one with the words of eternal life. Jesus was willing to let them go. He didn't run after him with a scimitar sword and says, submit or I chop your head off. He said, okay, you want to go, go. That's based on the concept that God is love. And uh, the more you love someone, the more you want that someone to love you back. God loves us infinitely. He has an infinite desire for us to love him back. But for our love back to be love, it must be voluntary. The moment he forces it, it's no longer love. It would be like the husband twisting his wife's arm saying, tell me you love me. Eh, no matter what she says, she doesn't love him. But if he woos her and courts her and gives her chocolate and flowers and all kinds of nice things, and after a while, out of the abundance of her heart, she says, I love you. That's what God's after. He's not after submit or I chop your head off. He's interested in this mystical thing of your free will and you voluntarily loving him. So he puts the tree in the garden, says, Adam and Eve, don't eat from it, but it's your choice. Gives the children of Israel the law, says, here's the blessings, here's the cursings, please choose life, but it's your choice. So you bring the horse to the water, you can't make it drink. And so he has positive and negative motivations. The positive is he blesses us so much we turn to him out of gratefulness. If that doesn't work, there's plan B. He withholds the blessings and we turn to him out of desperation. His goal is to have us turn to him, but he can't force us because the moment he forces us, our response is no longer love. Anyway, so the founders realized that. So that gave birth to this idea of free conscience. And so this was a, a very foundational principle in America. It's not you believe what the king says or you get killed. It's no, or your worship to God is only of value to him if it's freely given. And so the pastors realized that the kingdom of God could never be forced from the top down. Well, if it can't be forced, how's it going to happen? They thought if the majority of the people held godly values and elected representatives with their values, then laws would be passed reflecting those values, and the values of the kingdom of God could come voluntarily from the bottom up, not forced from the top down. So that's the experiment. Is it the historical, the creator gives the rights to the king, he dispenses it to the people, or does the creator give the rights directly to the people, and they choose their leaders from amongst themselves? And this is obviously what they chose. Now, where did the pastors get the idea to do this? They got some ideas from 
England and the 25 barons surrounding King John on the fields of Runnymede and forcing him to sign this Magna Carta in 1215 AD, limiting the arbitrary power of a king. They did get some ideas from the Roman Republic, which had 600 senators. There was a king named Tarquin, and he had a son who raped this girl named Lucretia. She was very virtuous, and she's so distraught, she gathers the Roman leaders together, commits suicide right in front of them. The Roman leaders get all upset, and they kill King Tarquin, and they make a rule in Rome that if anybody would ever declare themselves king, anybody could kill the guy without any repercussions. So for 500 years, nobody in Rome wanted to come anywhere close to being called a king, and so they were a republic with 600 senators, and, um, and it went on really well until Julius Caesar found a way to usurp power, make himself dictator for life and start the cult of Julius Caesar and make Mark Anthony his high priest. He made himself a god. Anyway, so the Roman Republic ended. They uh, did look back to Athens, which had a democracy, and everybody every day had to gather in the market and talk politics. And it worked until Alexander the Great's dad, Philip of Macedon, figured that he could take gold and bribe some of the citizens of Athens to betray their own city and create confusion And so they couldn't mount the defense. So Philip marched up to the walls and they surrendered to him, right? So he played the the greed of the people against them. Uh, But so they looked to England, Rome, Athens. But ultimately, our founding fathers looked back to Israel, ancient Israel. You think, really? The founding fathers looked back to Israel? Did you know the Constitution was written and it had to go to the states to be ratified? They needed nine states before it could go into effect. They had eight. New Hampshire was in line to be the ninth, but it was in a deadlock at their ratifying convention. And so Samuel Langdon, the president of Harvard, gives an address titled The Republic of the Israelites, an Example to the American States. What was the Republic of the Israelites? Well, this was ancient Israel when they came out of Egypt around 1400 BC until around 1000 BC. They were a republic before King Saul. Anyway, this address was so powerful that New Hampshire voted to ratify it They became the ninth state, and the U.S. Constitution went into effect after this sermon. So the Republic of the Israelites, again, about 1400 B.C., they leave Egypt. Who was in charge of Egypt? A pharaoh. And they come into the Promised Land. And for those first 400 years in the Promised Land, there was no king. Everyone was equal before the law. And the Hebrew law said there is no respect of persons in judgment. Rich or poor, everyone is to be treated the same. Male, female, made in the image of the Creator. Even the stranger living amongst you is under the same law that you're under. You compare this to the Islamic demi-status law where a non-Muslim has no rights compared to a Muslim, where in Israel, even the stranger living there was under the same law that they were under. Israel was the beginning of the concept of equality on planet Earth. That everyone you see is equal to you, There's no royal family somewhere that you got to butter up next to to climb some ladder. There's no caste system that you were born and stuck in, right? This is the beginning of the concept of equality. Ancient Israel was the first place where there was private land ownership. You see, wherever there's a king, you never really own the land. It's always conditional of you staying on the nice side of the king. You cross the king, he will take away the land and kill you. Where in Israel... The uh, land was permanently titled to the families. If they got in a pinch and sold the land, every 50 years it reverted back to the family. This prevented a dictator from gathering up the land and putting the people back into slavery. And if you can own land, you can accumulate stuff. 
The Bible called that being blessed. Karl Marx called it being a capitalist, right? You got capital, you got stuff, you worked hard and saved it. Um, That's why they called the promised land, because the people got to own the land. Ancient Israel had no police, because everyone was taught the law, everyone enforced the law. Sort of like being deputized. Everyone and ancient Israel had no standing army. You have a king, he has an army to enforce his will. In Israel, every man was in the militia and armed and ready at a moment's notice to defend his family and his community. Ancient Israel had no prisons. Remember the story of Joseph in Egypt in a dungeon for several years? Well, in Israel, the law said swift justice at the gate of a city. Someone commits a crime, you take him and immediately get the elders together at the gate of the city, and you hear the case right then. And then, of course, there's a city of refuge you could run away to to await a trial. But there were no prisons with people wasting away for decades. And ancient Israel had a bureaucracy-free welfare system. Remember in Egypt, people were selling their souls to the Pharaoh for a bag of grain? Where in ancient Israel, when somebody harvested their field, they left the gleanings for the poor people to pick through. This way, the poor were taken care of without some political leader collecting everything and doling it back out to those who can help him stay in power. Ancient Israel had a system of honesty. God hates unjust weights and measures. And so you could do business deals with people and know you're not going to be shy because you can take them at their word. This became the basis for commerce. And ancient Israel got to choose their own leaders. What do I mean? Moses say, spake unto the children of Israel, How can I myself alone bear your burden? Take you, wise men, and understanding, and known among your tribes, and I will make them rulers over you. So Moses did not go out among three million people and say, you, 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 you're the leaders. He said, no, take you, wise men, known among your tribes, and bring them to me, and I'll recognize them as your leaders. This was an election process. So the tribe would get together and say, okay, who do you, right? And um, so anyone in Israel could be raised up into leadership. There was no royal family hierarchy that you had to be related to. Uh, Gideon, here's Deborah. She becomes a leader in ancient Israel, not because she's related to the Pharaoh, but simply because she knows the law and she's honest and she has such a reputation of being honest that people make their way all the way across the country. She sits under a tree and she hears the cases and decides them. Where else in the world could a woman become a national leader simply because of herself knowing the law and being honest? And ancient Israel was the first nation where everyone could read. I thought this was fascinating. Remember those cuneiform characters in Sumeria? There were 1,500 cuneiform characters. I don't know about you, but memorizing 1,500 anythings is pretty complicated. But it was only for the kings and their scribes. It was for court records to keep track of everything the king owned. So the very first invention ever was the plow. Remember, Cain became a tiller of the soil. And then people started hitting each other with it. They turned into weapons. And then people gravitated together into cities for protection. And when you get people together, there's a dynamic. Someone starts telling everybody else what to do. 
And at first it's good. You defend yourself against these killers and you survive. That's a good thing. But then this person has kids and grandkids who end up claiming that they're special, that they're in elite class. They're related to the founder, that they're this hereditary monarchy. And they end up turning into these divine right of kings. And they claim to own everything. And they wanted accountants to keep track of everything they owned. And so writing started as an accounting method. And so in China, uh, the emperors would have their scribes. They would have knots in ropes. That's how they counted. They'd have a warehouse. How much is in there? These ropes hanging down. Look at how many knots are there. And so like an abacus with beads and rods, they would figure a way to count. And so in Sumeria, they had tokens and dishes. And so you had a bunch of warehouses, and they'd have little dishes and little tokens in each one. That's how much was in there. Then they started making markings in the tokens. Have you ever tallied where you do the lines one, two, three, four, and then a line across for five, right? And then, so this turned into the markings for cuneiform. And they had 1,500 of these characters. Not only was writing and numbers, but then it kept track of the king's decrees and the king's genealogies to trace himself back to that first founding guy and also some astrology stuff. And it was only for the kings and their scribes. The common people were not allowed to read. And uh, in Egypt, they had 3,000 hieroglyphic characters. And again, only for the pharaohs and their scribes. It was the scribes' secret knowledge. The scribes actually kept writing complicated on purpose as job security. They were needed to interpret these complicated hieroglyphs. And uh, in China, they had 10,000 Chinese characters, again, just for court records. And so if you're a king and you want to control masses of people, you want them to be ignorant. Sort of like a common core type of thing where it's just mostly behavior modification and not academic. Uh, So um, in um, Virginia and Maryland, prior to the Civil War, they had laws making it a crime to teach slaves to read. So here's Frederick Douglass. He's a Republican advisor to Abraham Lincoln. He writes in his autobiography about growing up on some Democrat plantation, and his, the slave master's sister-in-law was teaching him the alphabet. The slave master walks in and yells at her. and says, don't you dare teach slaves to read. They'll grow discontent and want to run away. And Frederick Douglass says, that was my first sermon on why I wanted to learn how to read. Anyway, so um, when... You are a king, and you want to control people. You want them to stay ignorant. And so when Moses came down the mountain, he did not just have the law. He had the law in a 22-character alphabet. Not 1,500 characters or 3,000 or 10,000, just 22 characters. It was so easy to learn, the entire nation became littered. Even little kids could learn how to read. So ancient Israel is the first nation in world history, where everyone could read. And not only could they read, they were required to read because the law was addressed to each person. So to have a people ruling themselves without a king, they need to be an educated and moral populace, right? Because the people are the king. And, um, and so President Harry S. Truman said the fundamental basis of this nation's laws was given to Moses on the Mount. He goes on to say, if we don't have a proper fundamental moral background, we will finally end up with a totalitarian government which does not believe in rights for anybody except the state. Margaret Thatcher, Prime Minister of England, said, the Decalogue Ten Commandments are the origin of the sanctity of the individual. 
You don't get that in any other political creed. It's personal liberty with personal responsibility. Your founding fathers came over with that. What were these other political creeds? They were kings, and your life was based on how well you served the state and served the king. You didn't have any individual worth. Your worth was dependent on how well you served the guy. And so it's a spectrum of power. One side's total government, the other side's no government. Everybody hold up a fist in one hand and say concentrated power. Concentrated power. Then your fingers apart with the other hand and say separated power. Separated power. Then back to the fist, concentrated power. Concentrated power. That is world history. For most of world history, power is in the hands of the kings, Pharaoh, Caesar, Kaiser, sultans, and czars. Every now and then, people get a rare opportunity to stretch the rubber band and rule themselves without a king. But in times of crises, the rubber band snaps back. And so... Ancient Israel, the, the, when the power's in the hands of a king, it's corrupt. And uh, now what time am I supposed to end? Just keep going, brother. All right, well, am I keeping your attention okay? Yeah, oh yeah. Um, so power, as power cr- concentrates, it gets corrupt. Let's say you got to be the king, and you were going to be really fair. And then you have a sister with a teenage son that drinks and drives and parties and hits somebody and kills them. And now this teenager is facing manslaughter, life imprisonment charges. And your sister comes begging to you and says, you're not going to let my little Johnny get locked away the rest of his life. It wasn't his fault. Those other kids talked him into it, blah, blah, blah. What are you going to say to your sister? Well, I'll let little Johnny off the hook this time, but don't let it happen again. Guess what? As soon as you say that, you are the corrupt dictator. You just sent ripples through the kingdom that if you're family or friends with the king, you get special treatment. If you're not family and friends, you don't get that special treatment. And if you're an enemy trying to unseat him, he's going to be tempted to use the power to shut you up. So as power concentrates, there will be favoritism. There will be corruption. It's just part of the the situation. And so the opposite is to separate power. Well, if you separate it, the individual people need to have virtue. Well, what's virtue? Virtue is having internal morals. Everyone follows a software program where they're internally following these morals. But wait a second. Why would you follow an internal moral? What would cause you to deny yielding to a selfish temptation? Well, ancient Israel introduced into the world the necessary ingredient. A God who is watching everyone, he wants you to be fair, and he will hold you accountable in the future. So let's say you're about to steal something, and you know you can get away with it. And then you think, God is watching me. He wants me to be fair. He will hold me accountable in the future. Maybe I should hesitate stealing. And it creates something in the back of your head called a conscience. If everybody in the country believes God is watching me, he wants me to be fair, he will hold me accountable, everybody is motivated to follow these internal morals And you can have complete order in society with no policemen following everybody around. Maximum liberty and freedom. But if you get rid of this God, it all falls apart. Here is Democrat presidential candidate William Jennings Bryan stated, A religion which teaches personal responsibility to God gives strength to morality. There is a powerful restraining influence in the belief that an all-seeing eye scrutinizes every thought and act of the individual. Ben Franklin says, The soul of man is immortal and will be treated with justice in another life, respecting its conduct in this. Here's Mississippi Constitution. No person who denies the being of God or a future state of rewards and punishments shall hold any office. I thought this was interesting. This is John Adams. He says, Let it once be revealed or demonstrated that there is no future state. And my advice to every man, woman, and child would be to take opium. (laughs) 
He says, for there is nothing in this world living for but hope, and every hope will fail us if that last hope, that of a future state, is extinguished. Right? And so all these founding fathers believe there's a God is watching. He wants us to be fair. He's going to hold us accountable in the future. And here's William Lynn, the first chaplain of the U.S. House. He says, let my neighbor persuade himself that there is no God, and he will pick my pocket and break not only my leg but my neck. If there is no God, there is no future account. And Reagan, without God, there is no virtue because there is no prompting of the conscience. You get rid of this God, all you have is morals and laws. Why follow them? If there's no God, this life is all there. Why follow these morals and laws? Well, some will out of social acceptance or habit or pride or something. Others are going to say, forget this. If there's no God, I can, I'm going to do whatever I want. And they're going to give in to their passions and lust and rob and steal and set buildings on fire and have mobs in the street and start rioting and killing and shooting police officers. Everybody's going to say, government, uh, please step in and restore order. And the government will come in with their militarized police and go house to house and collect everybody's guns. And yeah, they'll restore order. But when the dust settles... You'll have fundamentally transformed your country from the people ruling themselves back to a king. And so you get rid of this God, and why follow these morals? And some will, some won't. Those that won't are going to start rioting. And then, so what happened with Israel? Well, it worked as long as the priest taught it. You see, every kid is born with this selfishness. It's like every computer you buy is preloaded with a virus, and you have to immediately take it to a computer geek to get it cleaned off. Every kid is preloaded with a virus of selfishness. And they would take him to the Levite and the priest and say, clean him up. And he'd say, okay, kid, you want to steal? Don't steal. You want to lie? Don't lie. You want to commit adultery? Don't commit adultery. And, and so it's like recoding him. And it worked as long as the priest did it every single generation. But when the priest stopped teaching the law, the thing fell apart. And so here's the high priest, Eli, the main guy who's supposed to be teaching the law. His own sons are sleeping with women in the very tent of meeting with the Lord. Here's a story of a Levite with the tribe of Dan with a graven image. And the tribe of Dan comes along and says, hey, let's take you in this graven image and you can be a priest for our whole tribe. And you're sort of scratching your head thinking, what's this Levite doing with a graven image? Isn't that one of the laws? You're not supposed to have graven images. And then there's a story of a Levite with a concubine in Judges 19. The law says the Levite's to marry a virgin of his own tribe. Here he is with a woman he's not even married to. And so they're traveling, and they're in a house surrounded by sodomites, banging on the door, something about that behavior that appears in the last stages of a people ruling themselves. And the, the Levite shoves the poor girl out. She gets raped and dies. He comes out, and he chops her body in 12 pieces, sends it to the 12 tribes. They all get together and kill the sodomites. And by the time you're grossed out, you read this line that says, every man did what was right in their own eyes. Why did they all do what was right in their own eyes? Because the priests had stopped teaching them what was right in the Lord's eyes. And the whole thing fell apart. And so um, they all go to Samuel the prophet, and they said, this isn't working. We want to be like all the other kings, uh, all the other countries. We want a king. And Samuel cries, and the Lord tells him, they have not rejected me, but they, uh, they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. And so they get King Saul. And uh, what happens? King Saul demanded their conscience. What do I mean? So King Saul is pouting. My son made a league with David. Nobody cares about me. And this guy named Doeg the Edomite says, I am your friend. I saw David go to the city of Nob. The priest gave him the sword of Goliath and some bread. And Saul says, okay, tell all those priests to come here. And then he turns to his men and says, kill him. And the men hesitate. And Doeg says, I'll kill him. He goes out, kills them all, kills, goes to the town, kills the men, women, and children. What just happened? Israel had been a republic where each individual citizen is responsible to God, and it's the priest's job to teach him to be responsible to God and to follow the law. The law says that you don't 
kill somebody on one witness. You need at least two or three witnesses to establish everything. There's only one witness, Doeg. And the law says you get the elders of the city together to hear the case. There's no elders there. It's just Saul just, just saying it. And so the people say, I'm accountable to God. And they hesitated. Doeg says, King, I'm going to surrender my conscience to you. If you tell me to do it, I'll do it. You know, it's sort of interesting when the early Baptists were in England and they were against the king, and um, one of them wrote a pamphlet. And he says, if the king will be there on the day of judgment and answer for your actions, fine. Believe whatever the king tells you to believe. But if the king's not going to be there on the day of judgment, you are accountable to God for your own conscience. Right? And so um, what just happened was Saul says, I want your conscience. So don't be accountable to God. I want you to be accountable to me, not God. You know, there was a Chinese emperor who wanted to find out who was loyal to him. And so he has uh, a, a deer brought in and he tells his general, uh, that's a horse. And the general says, that's not a horse, that's a deer. Well, he kills the general. Goes to another one and says, this is a, a horse. That's not a horse, that's a deer. He kills the general. Finally, the next general says, okay, that's a horse. <laughs> the king wants you to deny reason, deny everything. He wants you to simply obey. And so if the king says there's no more male and female, the bathrooms are just uh, sort of fluid, whatever you feel like each day. I was like, and some people, that's, no, that's not right. Well, okay, well, you're going to be punished. Well, that's not right. You're going to be punished. Okay, well, okay, whatever you say, there's no more male and female anymore. The king demands your reason, your conscience, your soul. And a whole bunch of people say, okay, whatever they, whatever they say. Yale President Ezra Stiles says, the secular welfare of God's ancient people depended upon their virtue, their religion, their observance of that holy covenant which Israel entered into with God. Harvard President Samuel Langdon, the only government which had a proper claim to a divine establishment, was so far from including the idea of a king that it was a high crime for Israel to ask to be like the other nations. And when they were thus gratified, it was rather as a punishment. You want a king? I'll give you a king. He's going to take away everything. And so by the time America was founded, the most powerful king was the king of England. He controlled his global empire. The sun never set on it. America decided we want to break away from the king. We take the power of a king, break it into three branches, separate it federal to state level, and then we tie up this federal Frankenstein with ten handcuffs we call the first ten amendments. It was Eisenhower called it Frankenstein. Eisenhower said the national government was the creature of the states. Yet today the creature Frankenstein-like is determined to destroy the creators. And so the idea was they wanted to take the power of a king and separate it. And um, I... Uh, Use a, a way of illustrating separated power, um, the three branches. Uh, I'm one of 11 kids, so I have five brothers, five sisters. And I remember coming in from playing one time, and there's one brownie left in the pan, and my little brother and I were about to fight over it. And my mom says, one of you cuts it, and the other gets to pick the first piece. Now, the one cutting it doesn't know which piece he's going to get, so he wants to cut him exactly what? Equal. It works great unless you did it with my little brother because he spit on him and got both pieces. Of course, I punched him. But uh, imagine, imagine a big brownie and three hungry boys, and you give him a job. The first one's job is to trace out on the brownie where it's going to be cut. He doesn't know which piece he's going to end up with, so he wants to trace the pieces exactly what? Equal. Second one's job is to take the knife and actually execute it and cut the brownie. He doesn't know which piece he's going to end up with, so he wants to cut them exactly what? Equal. And the third one's job is to judge and see who gets which piece. So you have the legislative branch laying out the law, the executive branch signing it and enacting it into law, and the judicial branch judging the law. 
It's a stroke of genius. They're greedy, hungry tummies causing them to be honest. This would be like Pastor Rob giving you a Sunday school assignment. Design a system of government where sinners keep other sinners from sinning. That's what our Constitution is. Our selfish men keeping other selfish men from becoming selfish. They realize there's no angels on earth. There's no people that are immune to temptations. All we got is selfish men. So let's pit it against each other. Anyway, so how do republics end? How do they get taken over by tyrants? Well, uh, in, we notice that in times of crises, it snaps back. But there's these philosophers that say, hey, let's speed it along. Let's intentionally create crises. So 500 years ago, Italy was a bunch of city-states, Venice, Genoa, Naples, Florence, Siena, and they all had armies and navies and fought. And this guy Machiavelli thought, you know, if one prince could control all of Italy, it'll stop this infighting. So he writes a book called The Prince, where he advocates the ends justifies the means. The end of one prince controlling all of Italy is such a good end that any means necessary to get there is justified. Lie, cheat, steal. So if a prince conquers a city, they would hate him. But if the prince pays criminals to kill cows and burn barns and create crisis, the people would cry out for help. The prince would come in, kill the very, the very criminals he bribed. Nobody would know the better for it, and they'd praise the prince as a hero. And so it's good marketing. You create the need and fill it. You go around the back of the house and set it on fire, and then you go around the front of the house and sell them a fire extinguisher, and they'll pay anything for it and thank you for being there. So it's called Machiavellianism, where you create or capitalize on a crisis to consolidate control. That influenced somebody named Hegel. Isn't he handsome? And so when Napoleon conquered Germany and Prussia, the king said, we need to strengthen the state. So Hegel came up with a way of strengthening the state called Hegelian dialectics. It's a triangle. One corner is a thesis. The opposite is an antithesis, antithesis. Top corner is a synthesis. Sounds complicated, but it's not. You start here. You create a problem that's real bad, and everybody's happy to settle for your answer. That's half as bad. Then that becomes the next starting point. You create another problem that's real bad, and everybody's happy to settle for your answer. That's half as bad. And you you keep doing this over. So that inspired Karl Marx. And he says, well, how do you create problems that's really bad? You send in agitators and organizers and agent provocateurs, provoking agents, and they come in and find the grievances in society, and they stir it up until there's bloodshed and rioting in the streets. And then everybody begs a strong government to come in and restore order, and 45 countries fell to communist dictators this way. And that inspired, so so they'd organize the proletariat against the bourgeois, the poor against the rich, and so forth. That inspired somebody named Saul Linsky, who rode around in Chicago with Al Capone's hitman, Frank Nitti, and saw that all you had to do was kill a few people, smash a few windows, and the whole neighborhood would submit to the mob and pay extortion protection money. He applies this to politics. And so he says the organizer's first job is to create the issues or the problems. The organizer must first rub raw the resentments of the people of the community. And the organizer must stir up dissatisfaction and discontent, fan the latent hostilities of many of the people to the point of overt expression. The organizer polarizes the issue and helps lead his forces into conflict. He must search out controversy, for unless there is controversy, the people are not concerned enough to act. So this is the politics being played out on America. Hillary Clinton did do her senior thesis at Wellesley College on Saul Alinsky. And our current president was a community organizer with the Solinsky people in Chicago. And so um, it's uh, basically uh, Proverbs 6, where it says six things the Lord hates, you know. Anyway, um, my clicker stopped clicking here. Maybe, I, maybe that's a signal that I'm supposed to quit. So, okay. So we see these crises that are happening, and they're all organized, and uh, even this recent one. And uh, so now we're letting all these Islamic immigrants in, and they do lots of the rioting in Europe. And the thought is, are we being set up for an Arab Spring? Simultaneous rioting going on. And then the uh, people say, well, we need the president to step in and uh, suspend the elections and restore order. 
And uh, so if you get rid of this God, then you just got morals. Why follow them? Some will, some won't. Then it's going to end up being crisis and it's going to uh, start moving. So Proverbs 6 says, six things the Lord hates, a proud look, lying tongue, last is he that soweth discord amongst the brethren. So this is the intentional sowing of discord. And so who's the king in America? We talked about the king being the most common form of government in world history. Well, here a signer of the Constitution, Governor Moore, said the people are the king. Chief Justice John Jay, the people are the sovereign of this country. Abraham Lincoln, the people of these United States are the rightful masters of both Congresses and courts. Signer of the Constitution, James Wilson, sovereignty resides in the people. They have not parted with it. Grover Cleveland, the sovereignty of 60 millions of free people is the working out of the divine right of man to govern himself, a manifestation of God's plan concerning the human race. So in America, the people are king. And when we pledge allegiance to the flag and to the republic for which it stands, a republic means the people are king ruling through their representatives, right? They represent you. And so you're the king and you have servants called public servants. They're your representatives, but you're the king. So when somebody steps on the flag, what they're saying is, I don't want to be the king anymore. And so you get rid of the flag of the states and and you're going to go back to the crest of a king. And uh, so imagine visiting an Old Testament king. You're going through the streets of Jerusalem and you're seeing murders and rapes and crime and you get into the king's chamber and he has his head in his hand and he looks at you and he says, do you see all that crime coming in here? I wish somebody would fix it. You like reach over, tap him on the shoulder and say, excuse me, you're the king. This is your kingdom. Though your servants running wild. You're the one accountable to God to fix it. That's like somebody in America watching TV, seeing all the terrible stuff going on and saying, I wish somebody would fix it. Hello, reach through the TV tube and tap you on the shoulder. You're the king. This is your kingdom. You're the one accountable to God to fix it. Well, I I need somebody to tell me what to do. Since when does the king sit on the throne and say, can somebody tell me what I'm supposed to do here? (laughs) You're the one that's supposed to hear from God and tell everybody else what to do. God has a plan for each person to do something. Seek him and figure it out. And so James Wilson said, every citizen forms a part of the sovereign power. He possesses a vote. And so we vote. Now, not to vote is to abdicate your throne. That's like the king sitting there and all the servants and the soldiers. Hey, your kingdom's being invaded. Um, well, so, well, tell us what to do. I'm, no, I'm not going to vote. I'm not going to tell you. Uh, some people say, well, just trust God. You don't need to vote. Don't get involved. Just trust God. Here's a great quote from Connecticut Governor Jonathan Trumbull during the revolution. To trust altogether to the justice of our cause without our utmost exertion would be tempting providence. So you want to trust God, right? But you also want to give your utmost exertion. So if the people are the king, who are the counselors to the king? You ever, uh, so in 379 AD, there's a Roman emperor named Theodosius. He's Christian, right? The Roman Empire after Constantine became Christian. And he goes to church in Milan, Italy, and there's a bishop named Ambrose, St. Ambrose. And could you imagine being Bishop Ambrose and having the Roman emperor in your church on Sunday? Well, guess what? That's exactly what we have in America. So the Pew Forum says that 70-plus percent of Americans identify themselves as Christian. 70 percent. I think that's a majority. And since they identify as Christians, that means they're going to church somewhere, which makes the pastor a counselor to the king. So I'll end with this story. So you ever see the movie The Lord of the Rings? And there's this scene of a King Theodon. He's decrepit. He's got gray hair, gray eyes. He's out of it. But he's the king. And uh, his kingdom's being invaded. And he's got two counselors. One is a guy named Wormtongue, ugly guy. And he says, stay asleep. Yeah, go back to sleep. Don't get involved. Yeah, your kingdom's being overrun, but just wait a little longer. It'll all be over. 
And then there's another counselor to the king named Gandalf, and he comes in and casts the devil out of him. And right before your eyes, the king sort of comes to. He's like, dark have been my dreams of late. It's like, yeah, you've been out of it. And then the pastor says, well, maybe you'll remember your strength if you take your sword. And so the pastor's job is to wake up the king. So one pastor comes in on Sunday and says, oh, just go back to sleep, be real spiritual. And another one comes in, throws a bucket of ice water on his congregation. And he says, uh, you don't just have the right to vote. You're going to be held accountable to God for what happens. You literally are the king. Romans 13, every authority is set up by God. God allowed our founders to set it up so the people are the king. And um, Martin Luther King Jr. says the church is the conscience of the state. So the most important thing is to bring people to Christ, but the second most important thing is to preserve the freedom to do the most important thing. So if you really believe the gospel is the answer, you're going to be involved doing something to preserve the freedom. So in times of crises, power concentrates back into the hands of a king, right? But it's also in times of crises that people turn to Christ. How many of you turned to Christ when everything was absolutely perfect in your life? How many of you, there was a crisis bigger than you are? Debt, discouragement, divorce, depression, and you're like flat on your back, help! And in your crisis, you turn to the Lord. Well, God in the crisis, so the devil wants to have the crisis so the rubber band snaps back, but the other side of it is the crisis is going to cause people to turn to Christ and we'll see a great revival. But also in times of crisis, leaders are raised up. So what are the stories we love most in the Bible? It's where there's hopeless situations and God raises up little nobodies with faith and courage to do big things, right? Gideon and Moses and David. And so this is our turn. And so uh, uh, Chief Justice John Jay, Americans are the first people whom heaven has favored with an opportunity of choosing the forms of government under which they should live. All other constitutions have derived their existence from violence or accidental circumstances. Your lives, your liberty, your property will be at the disposal only of your creator and yourself. That is what our founders gave to you and me. Your life, your liberty, your property will be at the disposal only of your creator and yourself. There's no king telling you what you have to do every day. There's no king that says, you're going to spend the rest of your life as a slave building a pyramid, a city of the dead for me. You're going to spend the rest of your life. No, you get to decide. This is what you get to in America. Uh, Ronald Reagan said, in this country of ours took place the greatest revolution that has ever taken place in the world's history. Every other revolution simply exchanged one set of rulers for another. Here, for the first time in all the thousands of years of man's relation to man, remember we talked 6,000, the founding fathers established the idea that you and I have within ourselves the God-given right and ability to determine our own destiny. You get to determine it. There's no person determining it for you. Anyway, uh, someday you're going to be dead. It's a nice way to end the message. But... uh, But you're going to be in heaven because Jesus died for your sins. And when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, with no less days to sing his praise than when we just begun, imagine you've been in heaven 10,000 years, and you're walking the streets of gold, and you meet Moses. Maybe Moses will invite you over to his place. Maybe he's got a big living room like tonight. And after all the small talk's over, you say, Moses, tell us the story. And he'll stand up and say, I was 80 years old, and Pharaoh, the most powerful military leader in the world, was charging in at us. We were unarmed, and I just held up my staff. I said, God, use me to deliver your people. And the wave came in and swallowed up Pharaoh's chariots. And then we're going to look around the room and say, David, say, David, David, tell us your story. And he'll say, well, I was just a teenager, and this giant thug Goliath was mocking our God and making fun of us and our faith, and and these grown-ups were too chicken to do anything. And I said, well, enough of that. I went out and hit him with my sling and took his sword and chopped his head off. We're going to say, wow. And one by one, all of them are going to tell their stories. And then everybody in the room is going to look at you. Say, you, we haven't heard your story yet. What happened when you were on earth? Tell us how everything looked terrible and everybody was against you. And you stood up with faith and courage and just stood against it all. And how God did miracles. Tell us about it. What are you going to say? I'd hate for any of us to 
sort of say, well, can you call on somebody else for a minute? Or for Jesus to walk in the room and have a big screen and all kinds of great things happening and him saying, you know, this is what I planned for you to do, but you just didn't have enough faith. Like, oh man, I, I, I wish I could do more, but you're already in heaven because you believe that Jesus died for your sins, but you can't go back to, guess what? You're still on this earth. We still can do those things that you'll be known for forever. This is an exciting time. So God chose out of the 6,000 years that you would be alive right now. He's given you his word. He's given you his spirit. He's given you an absolutely tremendous church. He's given you everything. And you're like the basketball player sitting on the bench, and the coach says, okay, time to get in the game. You're like, but coach, uh, didn't you notice they're sort of big? They're bumping into each other? He goes, yeah, I know. Uh, Get in the game. But, but coach, they're like, look, well, somebody fell down, coach. You can't. Yeah, I made you. I trained you. I drafted you. I, I coached you. You got what it takes. Get in there. And finally, he says, look, you're seven feet tall. They're four feet tall. Now get in the game. God chose for you to be alive right now. He's slapping you on the back. He says, get in the game. This is it. I, you're, the, you're the ones I've designed for this moment in history. Anyway, thank you so much.